Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, that's me. Hi, welcome. It is Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 134, Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell with you, brought to you this week and every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Hey, we've got two good conversations for you this time around. In the second half of the program, we'll talk with a music legend, singer, songwriter, funny man, Ray Stevens, who has been making records now for, uh, well, more than 60 years and uh, continues to be very successful at that. And we'll talk about some of the highlights of his career later on in the program. But we get things underway by featuring our conversation with Claire McNear. She's been writing for The Ringer for a number of years and writing about Jeopardy. Well, she's turned it all into a wonderful new book called Answers in the Form of Questions. And if you love Jeopardy and the late Alex Trebek, uh, you'll absolutely love the book. And we think you'll enjoy this conversation too with author Claire McNear. Claire, thanks so much for being with us today. I I can't tell you how much I loved your book. (laughs) Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Well, you've been writing about uh, Jeopardy for uh, about three or four years now for The Ringer, but what what led to the book itself? Yeah, I mean, I, I, like you said, I'd been writing about it for a few years and had gotten to know more and more people in that community. And there were just so many stories I wanted to tell. Jeopardy is at this moment of change, um, obviously, in, in the sense of, of there will now be a new host, tragically, but also in, in what contestants are doing. And I, I, I wanted to capture that moment of, of just profound change in, in Jeopardy, basically every side of it. Well, and of course, uh, made even more poignant now with the recent passing of Alex Trebek. You talk about it a little bit in the book. What, what direction do you think they'll go with the show after the end of this year? Yeah, I mean, it's it's so tough. It is It is so hard to imagine Jeopardy with anybody else as, as the host. Um, and, and it has been bittersweet for me with my book coming out last week to, um, you know, have this, have this be happening right now. Um, but I haven't put an excuse to talk about Trebek and, and talk about Jeopardy. Um, I had the great privilege of, of getting to know him a little bit while I was reporting um, for the book. And, and I, he was the first to say that Jeopardy would go on after him, that it was a good enough game, a good enough show that it would, it would keep going. And I think that the producers, the people at Sony um, who are making this decision, uh, I think they understand kind of what people want in, in a Jeopardy host. And, and I mean, really the best of Trebek was that he kind of was this authoritative scholarly figure, uh, but he was also fun. Like he was funny. He was good on TV. And I think they know that. Well, and the behind the scenes story uh, many stories about what Trebek was like when the cameras weren't mm-hmm. rolling and how he helped to, and you don't think of it as you watch, but how he helped to put people at ease uh, working the, the days when he would tape five shows at a time. And uh, he just, he comes across as not a different guy, but a much more well-rounded person than what we see every night. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was so much looser um, when, when the camera stopped rolling. I mean, he was funny. He had this really dark self-deprecating sense of humor and you could get a little bit of that on the show but you know he would swear he would talk about drinking like he was a a very fun um you know kind of like the cool the cool uncle basically (laughs) was it but but when you were but when you were actually on the jeopardy set and i had the privilege of of spending a bit of time there watching him um you could see how much work he was doing on these long tape days you mentioned that they would film five episodes in a single tape day he would get there at 6 a.m., sit down with the day's material, crack open a dictionary, 
mark the whole thing up with diacritical annotations to get the pronunciations just so. When he was actually in the game, so much of what he was doing was kind of like air traffic control and pacing <laughs> the players and, um, you know, and just keeping track of the board. Like it was, it was so much harder than it looked and that he made it look easy speaks to like how good he was and how hard he was working. Well, the behind the scenes people really emerges as a great story and heroes in the book as well. Um, producer Harry Friedman, who recently retired. But I was fascinated with the story of Maggie Speak. Can you talk about mm-hmm. her role in pulling this all together? Yeah. So uh, a thing a lot, I think people are surprised to learn about Jeopardy is that um, because of the 1950s quiz show scandals, if you've seen the movie Quiz Show, that uh it, it is uh, there's a federal law uh dictating the the sanctity of quiz shows basically it is it is actually illegal to cheat um on a game show like jeopardy and so jeopardy takes it very 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 seriously and one of the results of that is that for contestants um they only interact with the show's contestant department they they for instance um, did not really get to interact with Trebek other than exactly what you can see in, in an episode where he walks out, he runs the game, he shakes the hand at the end, and, and that's pretty much it. So the, the contestant department is this really wonderful group of people, many of whom have been with Jeopardy for decades, um, and for a long time it was run by Maggie Speak, who, who just retired. But their job basically is to not only sort of read the contestants in during this very long, stressful day at, at Jeopardy, but also just, you know, to keep them loose to when Jeopardy goes to commercial, you can see these people sort of rush up to them and start talking to them. And really what they're doing is you're just being like, great job, hon. Like, oh, you're, you're a little slow on the buzzer. I don't know. Like, <laughs> they're these incredible, charismatic people and, and are really just beloved by the greater contestant community. We're talking with Claire McNear about her wonderful new book, Answers in the Form of Questions, A Definitive History and Insider's Guide to Jeopardy. I loved reading about the strategy. Um, let's start with the forest bounce for anybody who doesn't know what that is. Yeah. So, I mean, as I mentioned at the very beginning, we are at this moment of change for, for contestants. And, and what I mean by that is contestants have gotten really serious about how they prepare and the strategies they use when they're playing. And the most famous strategy is the one called the forest bounce, which is named after a contestant named Chuck Forrest. And basically that's that's where the contestant bounces all over the board. They jump between categories. They jump between dollar values. And when he invented it, and actually it's, it's not, it's an old strategy. It dates back to 1985. I believe it was just the second season of the, the Trebek version of the show. He really just meant it as a way of confusing his opponents. So of course it also confuses the millions of us watching at, at home from our couches. <laughs> But, but now it's sort of been retooled by people like James Holzhauer, who moved kind of sideways across the bottom of the board. And he was not just trying to confuse his opponents. He was also trying to rack up as much money as he could and also find the daily doubles, which tend to be at the bottom of the board. I was also fascinated to learn how important utilizing the buzzer properly is. And, and some, of the, some of the best, Ken Jennings probably being the, the biggest one, they're, they're great skill because everybody, as you point out, everybody knows the answers to the questions. All the contestants are very, very smart people just to get to this stage. But being able to manipulate the buzzer properly is a key part of the success. Yeah, absolutely. It is a huge part of the game. And it's it's one you can't really get a sense of when you're watching from home. I mean, obviously, there are those moments where you've got the contestant who's just shaking their hand and they can't get in and they're just so upset and your, your heart goes out to them. Um but it, it is this really complex system where I talked to a contestant who 
compared it to, who said that basically a weird thing about Jeopardy is it's, we think of it just as a trivia contest, but in fact, it's a, excuse me, it's, it's a trivia contest with a, with a like reflex test tacked onto it. So basically if you can't get the buzzer timing exactly right, you can know the entire board. You can know all 61 clues that are in a game of Jeopardy, but if you can't buzz in before your opponents, you're not going to be able to ring in at all and you're, you're going to go home. And, and so it becomes this very precise thing where if you buzz too early, you're locked out of the system for a quarter second, which is usually enough time for one of your opponents to get in. So you have to get in at this precise moment, the moment that, that Trebek uh, finishes reading a clue. And it, it's, it's, really, it's not only really hard and something that contestants really, really prepare for watching with ballpoint pens for years and years, um, but, you know, it's, it's this incredible stressful thing as well that, you know, you just, you can't really get a sense of it unless you're on the set. I don't know if I should thank you for this, but since I read your book, I have gone deep down into the rabbit hole of the J archive. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the J archive is a fascinating, fascinating website. Um, and it is, it is a database created by and maintained by Jeopardy fans. It's not affiliated with the show. And, and basically what they have done is they manually enter the clues from every single game of Jeopardy. So, uh, you know, if you check it tomorrow, tonight's game will be up on Jeopardy. And uh, they've done this through pretty much all of the Trebek era of the show. So 36 and a half seasons, give or take. And they don't have every single game, but they've got awfully close to that. So it's about, I think, 400,000 clues. So it's become this really vital resource to people who are preparing to go on sh- on the show because it's, it's effectively the entire history of Jeopardy. Uh, can you explain about the uh, Coriat score and how that works and how uh, using that, our friend Alan Adams actually won in his appearance? Yeah, so that's <laughs> I mean that is another one of these kind of fundamental um, tools that the contestants have really started to use a lot more now. So that's named after another Jeopardy contestant in Carl Coriat. And and what it is 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 sort of a raw <clears throat> number to tell you um, how a contestant did. So, uh, you know, if if the only clues that I buzz in in on in a game of Jeopardy are the two two hundred dollar clues that you know I managed to beat my opponents to, my Coriat score is uh, four hundred. But if I got one of them wrong, it would be treated as a negative value, so my Coriat is zero. So it, it really punishes you for the negative answers, but it also takes away the kind of betting elements of the game. So you can get a sense of what you actually know. And that, of course, is really useful for people who are using things like J-Archive to prepare for their appearances because you can basically go through a board all on your own with no mm. opponents fighting you on the buzzer and, and get a, a very good sense of what you know and what you don't know. And, and I mean, the Jeopardy canon is, is, is a fairly static thing. So, it, you know, you know, you know that you need to know opera, you need to know ballet, you need to know all these other things. I was also uh, glad to see another friend of ours uh, was one of the many contestants you talked to, Ted Berg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ted, Ted is wonderful. Ted uh, told me one of my favorite things I learned about Trebek, um, which is that uh, Ted played, and, and you can see um, in the closing moments of, of Jeopardy! episodes, you can see Trebek walk over to the contestant and shake the hand of the champion, and you can't really hear what anyone's saying. They cut the microphones. And for Ted's game, and what I've since learned is this is pretty common, Trebek just wanted to talk about the final Jeopardy clue. None of them had gotten it. They'd, they'd all, it was about a Hawaiian volcano, and they were looking for Kilauea, the name of the volcano there. And, and they couldn't quite get to it, but Ted knew it was a Hawaiian volcano. He just couldn't remember the name. 
But Trebek, so much of the time, if he thought it was a hard clue, he would he would be saying to the contestants, like, oh, wow, you know, how did you get that? Like, really, did you get this intimate? Like, he was really impressed by it. Or in the case of, of poor Ted, who's heartbroken having just lost uh, having just lost on Jeopardy, kind of being like, oh, come on, don't you remember seeing this in the news with the lava pouring down the street? <laughs> and it, it just, it was, it was something that Trebek really cared about. He actually cared about the material. He cared about these facts. It was sincerely really important to him. Uh, it was fun, too, to learn even more about, uh, well, I was going to say the big three of uh, James Holzhauer, Ken Jennings, mm-hmm. Brad Rutter, but but so many of the, the really, really successful champions, Buzzy Cohen, who was a big help to you in the book, Austin Rogers as well, and, and along with the incredible skill, they also had the component that, that a lot of people forget about when the folks at Jeopardy are searching for contestants, and that's having that personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that has become a really uh, significant part of the game in recent years where, yeah, I mean, they want people first and foremost who are very, very bright, who will do well on the show, who know all this stuff. To get to Jeopardy, you have to take this famously difficult 50-question test. If you do well enough, about 100,000 people take it every year. If you do well enough on that, about 2,500 people get invited to take a second version of that test at an audition, usually in person this year on Zoom. Um and then the final component of that is basically a television readiness test because Jeopardy is also a TV show and, and the producers want to make good, entertaining TV. And so, you know, obviously, as I said, they are still going for very, very bright people and people like Buzzy and Austin, of course, are. They won a whole bunch of games, a whole bunch of money, uh, but they also had fun with it. They were fun to watch on, on the show. You know, you're rooting for them or maybe you're rooting against them. Like, they're actual characters on the show, and it really has changed the way that you watch Jeopardy. I just want to be a fly on the wall one night at this uh, weekly gathering at O'Brien's in Santa Monica, but you got to participate in this incredible trivia contest among, uh, well, the, the best and brightest of the Jeopardy world. Was that intimidating at all? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I did terribly, but fortunately, some very smart people had invited me onto uh, their team, so so they managed to, to pull out the victory. Uh, no thanks to me at all. But it, I mean, there's this was one of the things I really wanted to capture in the book. There is this amazing Jeopardy alumni community. People who who who've been on Jeopardy kind of stick together. There is a private Facebook group that you are invited to if you have made it to jeopardy this kind of you know ceremonial invitation arrives the day that your episode airs um and and in los angeles um there there is this community of jeopardy fans that meet every week um online of course right now uh at a bar in santa monica called o'brien's and they have this just famously really tough weekly pub quiz and it's often written by the actual jeopardy contestants and i mean these are people like Brad Rutter, like Buzzy Cohen, like Pam Mueller, like Alan Lynn. They are very, very accomplished Jeopardy contestants, some of whom have won a whole bunch of money. Um, And they just come out every week to just keep playing trivia. It is such like a calling for a lot of the people who go on the show. And that tight alumni group isn't limited to the the people who've won the Tournament of Champions or have been immensely successful. Even the folks who have gone on once and, and absolutely flopped in their appearance, still take great pride in getting to the show because just just being on is such an accomplishment. Absolutely. So, I mean, I, I mentioned the numbers just now um, of the 2,500 who, who make it to the audition at all, which itself is an, an accomplishment. Only about 400 um, 
make it to to Jeopardy in a, a given season. Like there are only about 230 episodes. They have tournaments. It's very selective, and people spend years and years trying to get there. But once they do, unfortunately, they have to play against other Jeopardy contestants, and the numbers are really, really stark. Just about 75% of contestants on Jeopardy lose their very first game. They never win. But having done that, having been on that stage, having gotten to that stage is so hard to do and is such like a weird, fantastic uh, experience for so many of them that I think it, it, it rightfully becomes an identity to some degree. I mean, you see on social media, like on Twitter, so many people have like bronze medalists on Jeopardy in their Twitter bio. It really is this lasting um, part of part of their identity. And, and having spent some time in that world, I absolutely understand why. So after spending all of this time researching and writing this wonderful book, what do you think is the biggest reason why the game still resonates uh, so much through America after nearly four decades? Yeah, I, that really was one of the central mysteries to me because game shows come and go. And, and why is this, you know, very staid trivia game, uh, this, this ratings hit, I mean, about 10 million people watch it every night. And I think it's, I think really it, it, it is a credit to Alex Trebek, who, of course, um, you know, spent 36 years and change as, as the host and was just so good at it. Um, but it's, it's also, I think a testament to the writers in particular, because they do a really good job with the material. It is, it is hard. Of course, it's hard. Um, but they, they've found this sweet spot and stayed in the sweet spot for decades of hard, but it's still interesting you know if, if jeopardy were were insanely tough stuff nobody, nobody had ever heard of it wouldn't be fun to play from your couch you know it's not fun to watch three people say a bunch of names that you've never heard of <laughs> but they have done this really fantastic magic trick kind of 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 you know deploying pop culture and deploying clever writing that often has you know kind of a hint in it and just making this really smart game that's also really fun well, it is an immensely entertaining book, Answers in the Form of Questions, A Definitive History and Insider's Guide to Jeopardy! The Forwards by Ken Jennings. Uh, Claire McNear has done such a wonderful job on this. I hope you can get your wedding rescheduled here at some point. <laughs> yeah, we're still working on that. We were supposed to get married in March, and, um, <laughs> you know, so far just still engaged. Well, listen, we appreciate you making time for us. I, I love the book. We wish you continued success. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. That's Claire McNear talking Jeopardy. Her great new book, Answers in the Form of Questions. And Carrie, I, uh, I especially enjoyed reading about some of the different strategies employed through the years. I mean, we saw that most notably with, with James Holzhauer and going for those daily doubles, but, but so many different strategies, and some, as she pointed out, have been around since the mid-'80s. Yeah, it's interesting to see how the strategies play such... So many people think of the show as just a knowledge game, but the strategies are very important to becoming a winner, not just becoming a con contestant. And the importance of the buzzer in being successful, mm. uh, which, which can't be understated. And I love the part that and she talked about, it, and it goes into much more detail in the book, but to be a contestant, to get on the show, it's not enough to know the answers. You got to have some personality. They don't want, they don't want another machine on there just answering <laughs> questions. You know, they they did that already when they went up against uh, was it Watson? 
Yes. It's the IBM computer. But a fascinating book, uh, Claire McNear. When we come back after this word from Cross Insurance, singer-songwriter Ray Stevens. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super-regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Look at me. the biggest country hit of Ray Stevens' career, his take on Errol Garner's Misty. Back in 1975, Ray's been making music and hits since the late 1950s. We had a chance to catch up recently with the Country Music Hall of Famer. Hi, Rich. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Appreciate you carving out a little time for us. Well, glad to be able to speak with you. Well, I so enjoy the brand new version of Everything is Beautiful, the 50th anniversary edition that you released uh, just about a week ago. What prompted you to uh, to celebrate that and, and revise the song a little bit for the times we live in? Well, I, you know, it just uh, it was a no-brainer, actually. It just occurred to me that it would be perfect for uh, today's world. And uh, so uh, have you seen the video? I have. I love the video. Yeah, good. So, uh, you know, it just... Uh, Fell into place real quick, and everything was uh, um, uh, looks like it's going to turn out really good. And uh, you got to uh, go back and work again with the folks at Curb. What was that experience like? Well, it's going to be good, I think. Curb uh, uh, is uh, one of the few record companies, I think, that still know how to sell product. And uh, <laughs> I certainly hope so, anyway. Uh but, uh, you know, I've always uh, been a friend of Mike Curbs, and uh, so uh, it's it's exciting, to be honest with you, to be uh, back with Curb, and uh, they seem excited, and uh, we're going to move forward with a bunch of new product. Well, that's very exciting indeed. Now, 50 years ago, when Everything is Beautiful was first released, uh, boy, a lot of turmoil in America in the midst of the Vietnam War, and it it seemed like uh, we'd never be able to pull things together. And, well, here we are all those years later in the country, pretty divided once again. How do we, how do we begin that process of, of reaching out and, and bringing this country back together? Well, <laughs> uh, far be it for me to assume uh, the responsibility to know. I wish I did. I would be, I would be happily pontificating, but... Uh, <laughs> I do not uh, claim to have the answers. Uh, it's just going to be uh, it's going to be a rough go here for a little while. It looks like, but uh, you know, maybe God will step in and help us. Well, we can certainly use it here. Uh, well, let's go back to the early part of your career. Uh, you grew up in Georgia. How, how did Bill Lowry change your life, Ray? Well, you know, I uh, he's uh, the one that. Uh, said, uh, write me some songs, and I did, and he liked them, and he got me a record deal. I was 17 years old, 
So uh, that sort of uh, bells went off in my head, and uh, I uh, thought, well, you know, this might be something that I could do for a long time. So uh, it sure has been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> what did it feel like that uh, first time you saw, I'll see if I can remember it off the top of my head, Jeremiah Peabody's polyunsaturated, quick-dissolving, fast-acting, pleasant-tasting green and purple pills make its way up the Billboard chart? Well, it was exciting. Of course, that was a, in in retrospect, I can say it was a small hit, but it was at the time, uh, it was very exciting. And, uh, I of course followed that where they have the Arab. So, uh, and it was a big hit. And, uh, uh, like I say, those days were, uh, cause I was, you know, very young. Uh, those days were very exciting. You also did a, a lot of work as a session musician, a producer, a ranger. You worked with uh, everybody in the business, Elvis, Dolly Parton, Waylon Jennings. Matter of fact, we had uh, Andy Kim on the show a few months ago, and he told us that you even came into the studio and helped out a little bit with some hand claps on the Archie's Sugar Sugar. <laughs> yeah, you know, anybody could have come in and done that, but I just happened to be uh, there at the time, and Somebody said, "Come in here and clap on this," and I did, and it was uh, uh, it was uh, turned out to be uh, sugar, sugar. Now, of course, you had done uh, the comedy records that were huge sellers, but you also began to to write uh, very serious songs as well. I'm, I'm one of my favorites you ever did uh, was "Unwind," and then you followed that up with with "Mr. Businessman," and, and these were songs that were message songs to people. These were songs that what they were they were messages. You were sending out a pretty oh, serious yeah, message yeah, at a time when people songs. needed it. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I've always, uh, been a big fan of, uh, words, putting words together, uh, to have, uh, meaning that, uh, make people think and make people go, Oh yeah, well, that's, uh, that's, uh, something that I've always tried to do. We're talking with Ray Stevens here on downtown. How did you get together with Andy Williams and uh, end up signing with Barnaby records? I, uh, was uh roger miller was a friend of mine and he was managed by a guy named don williams andy's brother and uh don uh, uh roger said don you ought to manage ray stevens and so don called me and said do you want a manager and i said i don't know he said well i'll be in nashville he he lived in los angeles he said i'll be in uh nashville next week let's have lunch and so we did and uh, i signed with him as my manager and i was with him for 25 30 years and, of course, that led to a recording, Everything is Beautiful, which became a worldwide smash, Grammy Award winner, a multiple million seller. We had your daughter, Susie, on the program a few weeks back, and she told us she was part of that chorus on the song. Yeah, that, she. Uh, her, we took a portable tape recorder to her, her uh, uh, grammar school and uh, got the class out of, out of the classroom to the uh, auditorium or where we gathered. It could have been the lunchroom. And we turned on the uh, tape recorder, a little wallen sack, I think, or something like that, and recorded them, uh, the, the whole class singing uh, uh, Jesus Loves the Little Children and uh, put that on the front of Everything is Beautiful, and it just set it up perfectly. And... Uh, my other daughter, Timmy, also went to that same school, and we got her. She was a couple of grades ahead of uh, Susie, but uh, we got her in there, too, so I could have both my daughters singing on the record. So 
it worked out well. Yeah, it sure did. Now, could you have possibly imagined at the time that the streak was going to become the uh, huge phenomenon that it was? And yeah, I mean the I, song, not the streaking, of course. Yeah, well, I uh, I uh, heard about streaking. I read a, an article in Newsweek magazine about a college student in uh, California who took off his clothes and ran through a crowd, and they called it streaking. And I said, well, now, if this catches on, this will be a great song. <laughs> so I was on an airplane when I read the, col- the article, and I got home, and I immediately started writing my song. And uh, I... Uh, went in the studio so fast I was still putting the finishing touches on the song as we were recording it. And uh, when I heard the first playback, I thought, well, yeah, this is going to be a monster. (laughs) And we cut, back in those days, you cut acetates and sent them to radio stations. And we sent it to the local uh, station, pop station here in Nashville. And they played it, and the phones lit up, and uh, they called me back and said, this is a monster, and I said, thank you very much. And sure enough, uh, it sold like 5 million records or something like that. When I was uh, just a young guy, um, I was working at a country station, and Tuesday, record day, arrived a a brand-new song from Ray Stevens that absolutely blew me away. It became your biggest hit on the country charts. What a, a fantastic arrangement you did of Errol Garner's Misty. Oh, yeah, that was fun. That was an accident. I was uh, rehearsing in the studio with my road band for uh, a TV show that uh, we were going to shoot the next day. And during a break in that rehearsal, we started clowning around with Misty just for fun. And uh, because, you know, as you know, up until that point, the biggest record was Johnny Mathis with strings and everything. And it was really beautiful. And we were doing it with a banjo and a fiddle and a steel guitar. (laughs) <laughs> it started sounding so good. I called the engineer in. He wasn't there because it was just a rehearsal. And uh, I said, let's record this. And we did. Take, we recorded it actually in two takes. And it wow. came out and uh, won a Grammy that year for the best arrangement of the year. Uh, you went on to Warner Brothers and had great success with them. I uh, Need Your Help, Barry Manilow, uh, Be Your Own, Best Friend. And, and a song that I thought at the time was going to be a big hit, and, and I'm still surprised that it wasn't bigger, but I loved it. Get Crazy With Me. Well, thank you. Yeah, that, I thought that, you know, the synthesizers were relatively new at that time, and I had just bought one, and I was playing around with it, and I came up with this sound, that really weird, weird sound, and I put it, uh, I said, that's a crazy sound, and I wrote a song called Get Crazy With Me and put it, that sound on the record, and uh, I, was, I was very proud of that record. I thought it was uh, going to do a whole lot more than it did, but uh, that's showbiz. Yeah, well, it sure is. Uh, you, were, you were out in front of a lot of people when it came to producing videos as well, and, and that has been incredibly successful for you and, and, and gives your fans a, a whole new way to enjoy your music. Yeah, you know, videos are now the norm, but back in the, back in the beginning, uh, record companies didn't even consider them that important other than to promote the uh, audio product and uh so i uh, i made this long form video i asked the record company would they pay for it and they said no nah, no nah, we we can't spend that kind of money on promotion you know so i dug into my pocket and i paid for the video so i owned the videos there were eight of them and we put them in a package uh called uh, comedy video classics and it came we well, sold it on tv with the 800 number 
and that also at that time was a no-no. You know, you were washed up <laughs> if you sold your. You had to resort to uh, 800 number on TV to sell your records. Well, I wasn't washed up, and I didn't think I was, so I just said, "Well, to heck with that theory," and I put it on TV, and we sold five million of that uh, video, and uh, turned out great. <laughs> You've also had a, a long and, and very fruitful association with the great folks at RFD TV. Yeah, yeah, they uh, they sh they have shown my uh, show on TV, my recent show on TV called uh, uh, Ray Stevens Cabaret Nashville, and uh, they stopped showing it, but PBS has been showing it now for quite some time. So it's on PBS in a lot of markets uh, here in Nashville. It's on on Saturday nights at uh, 630 and uh, not all the uh, PBS stations carry it but you know a lot of them do I know this is a project of yours that I loved and uh, it was work I, I know but it had to be a lot of fun for you to put together the the amazing encyclopedia of recorded comedy that took a long time you well, know. Bet. It was a, a labor of love though I uh, was a big fan of all those old comedy songs and I thought well you know there's enough of them to create a big box set, and so I called it the Encyclopedia of Recorded <laughs> Comedy Music, and uh, there's like, a, I think, 100 songs in there, 102, 103 songs. And I uh, know you were out in Branson. You were one of the first to open up a theater there. Uh, these days, you've got the, the cabaret showroom, and that has been uh, a wonderful thing for you and your fans. You've got an online store as well, and, and again, just another way to connect with those Ray Stevens fans. Well, you know, the uh, coronavirus has sort of put a uh, temporary halt to uh, being able to do shows at the Cabaret. Uh, the name of the club is the Cabaret, by the way, if you didn't already say that. But uh, uh, as soon as this vaccine hits, I think we'll be back in business. Yeah, I sure hope so. And uh, what what was it like for you last year to finally, I don't know what took him so long, but finally get inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame? <laughs> Well, you know, better late than never. I uh, have always been uh, a big fan of uh, country music and, and uh, have made a lot of country records. And uh, I hired a, a public relate PR guy, and he said, I'll get you in the Hall of Fame. His name was he is Don Grubbs, and uh, he's got a company called Absolute Publicity. And he went to work, and sure enough, that little son of a gun did it, you know, so... <laughs> Uh, I got to give him a lot of credit. He, uh, he pushed for it a long time. You've been in Nashville a long time, Ray. How has the Nashville music scene changed uh, since you arrived uh, almost before there was a music row? Well, you know, it's, uh, the music business has, uh, sort of been in the dumps for a while because of the internet, because the internet just kind of took over and a lot of record companies don't even bother to release records anymore. Uh, because they, there are no record stores, and the only place you can sell your product is uh, uh, through downloads on the Internet. And, you know, they they really have, uh, uh, in my humble opinion, uh, let it go downhill, but they don't pay enough royalties and a lot of things like that. Uh, but uh, we'll see if we can't turn things around in the future i uh i'm thinking that uh, we need to elect some senators and congressmen that'll take it to heart and take it uh 
to the next level as uh, in as much as uh, promoting a better deal with uh, downloads on the internet. Yeah, those streaming services. I mean, that, that's that's out and out robbery. Yeah, it is. Ray, thank you so much. I, I've been a fan of your music for as long as I can remember, and it's uh, great to have the opportunity to talk with you today. Well, thank you. It's good to talk to you, Rich. That's Ray Stevens talking with us here on Downtown the Podcast. Our thanks to Ray, thanks to author Claire McNear, and thanks to you for joining us as well. For Carrie Haskell, I'm Rich Kimball, reminding you that Downtown the Podcast is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time on Downtown.